Episode 20 At the bar, Everill sat by himself at a corner table, sipping from a mug of beer that lasted all evening. In truth, he was a trifle unsettled. There was an empty spot in him that the struggle with the red cloud used to occupy. Something would have to fill it, but what? He watched the knot of men at the bar, telling jokes, flirting with the waitresses, occasionally beckoning to him with perplexed grins. Everill raised his glass, but did not join them. Though some of them were twenty years older than he was, he had begun to think of them as children. As they played, a feeling stirred in him that he could not name. One night Stevie came over to Everill's table and sat down. "'I've been thinking, Everill,' he said, digging a blackened thumbnail into a gouge in the tabletop. "'I've been thinking you know something the rest of us don't. You're so calm-like. So I was thinking I'd like to know what you know.' Everill pondered for a moment. It seemed he knew less than he ever had known in his life but he had to help Stevie. Like a forest creature, the boy saw water and gratefully bent his head to drink, never pausing to wonder if it was poisoned. "'I rid myself of an illusion,' Everill said at last. "'What do you mean?' Everill thought hard. "'I used to believe the past could be redeemed,' he said. "'But now I know what's gone is gone. It no longer exists. You understand?' "'I think so,' Stevie said. The next day Stevie backed away from the spar tree he was about to climb and pointed skyward. "'You lay off!' he yelled at the clouds. "'I'm doing my best down here, and I'm fed up with being told I'm no good. "'Can't you ever be happy with me? "'What about a little encouragement once in a while? "'I know I've made mistakes, but I always intended to do good, "'and I always will intend it. "'I don't need this crap from you any more. "'I don't accept it, you hear me? "'You lay off me, God.' "'It appeared to those watching that the sky then got a little bit brighter. "'That summer brought Everill the joy of his life.' Myra Waltz, the youngest daughter of Mrs. Waltz, who ran the boarding-house, came back home. She had been living with an aunt in Seattle while attending the university there. Everill spent many pleasant hours wondering if it was her schooling that had made her so fascinating, or if she'd been born that way. Myra wore her pale hair in two braids that extended to the middle of her back, along with granny glasses and an expression of permanent concentration that made people stammer in her presence. Her own words were clipped, like her gestures, as she helped her mother with the cooking and washing. At every spare moment she repaired to the common room, where she folded her lanky frame into an armchair, her left arm cradling some book or other. But the cradling was deceptive. That book was not in for babying. She whipped pages back and forth in ferocious re-examination, as if they dared to conceal even the tiniest shred of insight from her. She scribbled notes in the margins, gnawing her lower lip, and the pen as she scoured the pages for more secrets. Everill had never seen anyone attack a book like that. His mother, the schoolteacher, had held them in her palms like offerings. At first he was terrified to approach Myra. In waking nightmares he loomed over her about to say something he'd rehearsed for hours, like, "'What's that you've got there, Myra? A book?' When the red cloud sprang up from behind her armchair and enveloped her. He yelped and pawed at her. Myra's book went flying. He bent down to collect its sprawled carcass, her braids brushing the floor. In Everill's imagination, she glared up at him over her granny glasses, and when he apologized, she groaned, Idiot. But gradually, Everill realized that such a scenario could no longer happen. So, one evening after dinner, when the others had gone off to the bar, Everill brushed his teeth, Brill creamed his hair, and made his way across the creaking floor of the common room. He paused a few feet from his objective and made a show of examining the bookshelf, replete with dozens of volumes that Myra had brought back from Seattle. "'Graduated, have you, Myra?' he asked, pulling out a volume of essays by Wittgenstein. From the corner of his eye he saw Myra raise her head. She quickly ducked back into the pages she was wrecking. "'Yep,' she said, her eyes racing along lines of print. "'What are you going to do now?' "'What else? Cook and clean. 
I have to take this place over someday. I'm stuck here. For good? Yep. I guess I am, too. Everill had never thought this before. He'd been so busy crawling through his nights toward the relative safety of daytime, with its chainsaws and massive crashing trees, that he had given exactly zero consideration to what the next forty years of his life might look like. He saw now that the figure in front of him, her legs entwined under the meadow of her skirt, was his future. "'You ever read Plato?' Myra asked, holding her book up so Everill could read the cover. "'Can't say as I have.' Everill decided not to tell her that the bulk of his reading, even as a grown man, amounted to Tarzan, H. Ryder Haggard, and the occasional Superman comic. He says everything in this world is only a shadow of the real one, all we see is a kind of projection, like a movie, but we mistake the movie for the real thing. Hmm, Everill said. Did she want him to believe this or not? It reminded him of Sunday school in Indiana. This world was like a ladder, his teacher had said. You have to climb it in order to get to your destination, but once you're there, the ladder falls away. It's bullpucky, Myra said. What's right in front of us is all there is. Everill said, That means you're all there is, Myra. Myra smiled. Her teeth were small like a child's. Everill shivered. Does God lie in wait for us? If he does not react right away, or react too subtly for us to notice, how do we know that something we've done has pleased or angered him? Is meeting the man or woman of our dreams, dreams we did not even know we had, our reward for picking up that desperate hitchhiker last week? Or is the hitchhiker's theft of our checkbook a punishment for joining the playground gang that mocked the splotchy-faced new boy thirty years ago? Possibly it's for something we will never even remember doing. And what of that hitchhiker? Is she an agent of the Lord or an outcast? Have her scores of similar thefts? She's been on the road for five years, after fleeing her stepfather, who raped her but also once saved her from drowning, added up to a diagnosis of evil? If she and her stepfather both repent, are both of them equally welcome in the kingdom of heaven? Does God ever change his mind? For Myra, the fact that such questions could even be asked proved that God did not exist. Early in their courtship, she set about stripping Everill of any faith he might be harboring. Everill got a kick out of the intensity of her efforts, so he provoked them as often as he could. As for God's existence, he didn't actually care one way or the other. If the past was really past, the question did not seem to matter. Epicurus, Myra said, tapping her toe against Everill's calf, they were at the diner eating hamburgers, says, God is either omnipotent or good, but cannot be both. Then I choose good, said Everill, smiling around a greasy mouthful. You don't get to choose, Myra shouted. Why not? Look, Myra set her hamburger down so she could point at Everill with both index fingers. Say there's a God. Okay, there's a God. Let's posit, for the sake of argument, a God. By definition, we do not control his nature. At best, we can only seek to discover it. Who decided that? Well, in this scenario, God did. You can't go around choosing what kind of God you want. You don't have that kind of power, for the very reason that you are not God. Myra's cheekbones flushed with the effort of getting through to Everill. A braid slid off her shoulder, its tail curled in the crook of her elbow. Maybe God is whatever we believe about him, Everill said. We believe in an angry God, that's what we get. We picture a nice, loving God, we get that instead. Myra laughed. You're saying we make God in our image. That's not it. Then what? Everill aligned his remaining three french fries in order of ascending height. We bring God out, he said carefully. It's up to us to bring him out in the best possible form. It was just an idea. Myra laughed again and dumped the ice cubes from her soda glass into her mouth. She crunched the ice with her little teeth, and for that alone, Everill thanked whichever god he had, possibly inadvertently, called forth. 
The wedding took place three months later at the Lutheran Church, with the whole town and loggers from all over the Olympic Peninsula in attendance. Two of Everill's brothers came, as did his parents. They looked like a pair of exhausted strangers, which, in fact, they were. They had driven cross-country in their 1938 terraplane to see Everill for the first time since he had left for the war. He'd written to them often since returning, mostly in the form of postcards, sepia photos of enormous trees with loggers posing in the undercut. Jonah and the whale, ha ha, he wrote. But he didn't want to see his parents face to face. I can't tell you what I did in the war, he had explained in one card. I mean, I can't tell you because I don't know, and I don't want to know, and if I see you I might remember. They understood, his mother wrote back. They both walked with Everill down the aisle, each clinging to one of his arms. His fear of seeing them had been absurd. They were tiny. He could have lifted them each off the floor as they walked. At the reception, Everill asked the pastor why there was a fence around the church. The sight had always bothered him a little. The fence gave the slight suggestion of keeping something out, which seemed wrong, and there appeared to be nothing to keep in. The pastor explained that back when the church was first built, there had been sheep in the yard. Wolves had taken the sheep, all of them, in one horrific night decades earlier, but the pastor had left the fence up as a memorial. Wolves had since been erased from the Pacific Northwest, and the pastor was thinking of getting sheep once again. Everill did not mention that there were still coyotes to consider. Wars of all kinds have ended, the old pastor said. Now is a time of hope. Everill nodded, crying, and kissed his bride's hand.